Go ahead and find John chapter 7 with me. John chapter 7. There's some words and phrases that we use so often, they're practically meaningless. Uh, there's a word for this uh, phenomenon, for when this happens, a couple actually. Uh, we would call something like that trite or cliché. Uh, a word, a phrase, an idea that's overused, and because it's used so often, it's really of little meaning, little import to us. I had an English teacher once who would put giant red X's through clichés in our writing. We were not allowed to write clichés, so we would always get marked off for them. And so, for example, if you were to write in your paper that something was more than meets the eye, there was more than meets the eye to something, she'd put a big red mark through that. You've got to think of a creative way to say that. You can't just use it a tired old phrase like that, or, or in one fell swoop, what does that even mean? We kind of know how we use it. It's just a cliche. You've got to think of a better way to put it. Or even just very generic phrases and stuff, uh, in a very real sense, something like that. She's like, why in the world is that there? You've got to think of a different way to do it. And I get her point. They're just so overused, they're practically meaningless. Well, here is a very real danger. Making cliche the language of Scripture. For example, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Very meaningful verse from the book of Philippians, from Paul's pen. But I dare say rarely understood and appreciated in its fuller context. It's just something we sort of throw off as a generic, make ourselves ourselves feel better sort of thing. Or or here's one. Here's here's one. Hear, believe, repent, confess, be baptized. One, two, three, four, five. Got it oft-repeated formula for describing our proper response to God, but I'm afraid repeated so often that all the dimensions and all the depth of, depth of each of those biblical words are, are just totally glossed over, and we don't really appreciate any of those things. We just got our list, we tick it off, and we're done. Let's take faith. Faith. What is faith? Well, we might quote Hebrews 11.1, 1, it's the evidence of things helped for, the conviction of things not seen. Someone else says it's belief. Someone else says it's trust. And we can reach a point where we use a word like faith and all anyone really hears is just sort of blah, blah, blah. What a shame that would be. Because faith is one of the most dynamic and significant words in Scripture. And rather, this evening we're going to talk about faith, but rather than pepper you with dictionary entries and uh, concordance-type lists, here's all the ways in which faith is used in the Bible, what I want to do is I want to take you through stories in the Gospels where faith is a central theme. And I want us to appreciate faith in all its multidimensionality. I want to show you there is nothing boring or cliche about faith. If anything, faith should be a a scary and challenging word to us. So I want to show you five dimensions of faith. Beyond a trite little word, a trite little definition, five real dimensions of faith as we see it happening in the Gospels. We're not happening. Number one, we find in the Gospels faith is accepting new realities. This is central to faith. In the New Testament. This is John chapter 7. John chapter 7. When when people encountered Jesus, the one thing they never did was shrug their shoulders. The one thing no one ever did in the Gospels was yawn when they heard Jesus talk. Or when they got to the end, no one just said, so what? Maybe they didn't like what he said, but they certainly weren't disinterested in it. This is John 7 and verse 40. Jesus had just spoken here, and this is the response John 7 and verse 40. When they heard these words, some of the people said, This is the prophet. 
Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid their hands on him. The great question of the Gospels is, just who exactly is this Jesus guy? Even the disciples keep asking asking this question to themselves throughout the Gospels. Steadily progressing, we see them to the conclusion that Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God. But then it takes them even longer to come to the conclusion that the, the mission of this Messiah involved not the killing of all of his enemies, but being killed by his enemies. They come to realizations about who exactly Jesus is and what his mission is and then what that means for my life. They come to realizations like the one Peter makes in, in, in the previous chapter. Look at the end of John chapter 6. When all the crowds begin leaving Jesus, they've come to him for superficial reasons. Jesus knows that and he preaches a very hard sermon that weeds out the superficial from the substantial. And many of the people are leaving in disgust and disappointment, including those who had previously been disciples. This is John 6 and verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. The disciples come to believe a new reality which affects every other part of their lives. Their belief in Jesus as the Messiah and as God's Son means they now think differently, for example, about the nature of God. That in Jesus, this, this, this man is not identical with God the Father, and yet, somehow, he is God. Their belief transforms their view of his teaching from merely a wise rabbi to a divine revealer. This is not a wise man with a few good ideas, a few good suggestions for life. He is a divine visitor from heaven who is in the process of revealing God himself. Ultimately, their belief leads them to radically change their lives, to leave their homes to preach the gospel, even to die for this new belief, because there is a new reality that we have come to believe. This is really the beginning of faith for a disciple, accepting that God has reached out into the world through His Son to establish His kingdom, and because He has done that, the world will never be the same, and my life can never be the same. When I accept that reality, it changes everything about my life, and indeed, I spend the rest of my life figuring out what it means for the rest of my life. What is faith in the Gospels? Faith is about accepting new realities. Number two, Faith is about grasping the unseen. This is Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2 has one of my favorite stories in the Gospels. As Jesus preaches in a home in the city of Capernaum, um, a crowd comes in and gathers around. And there's a group of men who come upon the crowd carrying their paralyzed friend so that Jesus can heal him. This is the first thing people ever hear about Jesus usually is this great healer has come to town and so they flock to him for that reason. But they can't get through the door, it's so crowded. And so what's their solution? Well, they put a hole in the roof and they let the man down right on top of everyone inside the house. You can imagine what the people inside must have thought. I'm especially interested in what the homeowner thought whenever he saw that happening. But however shocked and scandalized everyone else is by this, by this action, 
Jesus is actually rather pleased to see all of this happening. This is Mark chapter 2 and verse 5. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. What Jesus saw in the actions of these men was faith on display. A type of faith that didn't just have some theoretical belief in the claims of Jesus, but a deep grasp of the uniqueness of his power and a conviction that he really could do something and a conviction that was strong enough that it couldn't even wait. But Jesus says something that's unexpected um, to the paralytic man. He says something unexpected on several levels. He says, son, your sins are forgiven. First of all, it's unexpected because that's not why they came, as far as I can tell. They didn't bring the paralyzed man so his sins could be forgiven. They brought the paralyzed man so that his paralysis could be healed. They expected the next words out of his his mouth to be, rise, take up your bed and walk. They came for medical help. They didn't come for metaphysical help. But it's also unexpected because his statement, as it's pointed out in the next few verses, Jesus' statement, son, your sins are forgiven, is tantamount to blasphemy if he's not not God. This is verse 6. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Good question. Jesus challenges them, verse 8. And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in the spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? So I think the key word here in understanding what Jesus is getting at is the word say. You've got to put the emphasis on the word say. Jesus says, which of these two things is easier to say? The answer is, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. Because if I say to you your sins are forgiven, you cannot check my work right there on the spot. We're going to have to wait till judgment day to see how that one pans out. Easy to say that and act like I do it and no one really knows. But if you tell a paralyzed man to get up and walk, everyone will know right on the spot whether or not you're a fraud. That's the hard one to say. And so, verse 10, But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Jesus proves he has the power to forgive by first showing he has the power to heal. He does the harder one to say so that you might know He can also do the easier one to say. He proves the unseen by the seen. Because I've told this man, rise, get up, and walk, now you know I can come through on my other promise. Son, your sins are forgiven. Go with me to the end of the Gospel of John, John chapter 20. John chapter 20, this is another story about the interplay between sight and faith. This is John 20 and verse 25. The Apostle Thomas was, uh, was not present when Jesus first appeared to the disciples post-resurrection. And when he heard from them secondhand that Jesus had risen from the dead, he didn't say, oh, wonderful, another one of those resurrection things that happened so often. Uh, no, that's not what he says. I think it's a brief lesson, by the way. People didn't believe in resurrections then any more than they do now. People then knew that dead people don't come back. And Thomas just sort of goes with that skepticism. And he makes this bold declaration in verse 25. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I, see in his hands, unless I see his hands in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger in the mark of his nails and place my hand in his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again. 
and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger in here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Now, we are not granted the privilege that Thomas received to physically investigate the body of Jesus, alive and yet still bearing the marks of crucifixion. And in that way, I sense, we tend to feel inferior to Thomas, at a disadvantage. If only we could have seen Jesus in his resurrected glory. But actually, Jesus says the opposite. It's not Thomas who should feel privileged. It's those who believe without seeing, verse 29, who are the blessed ones. This is really central to faith. Faith means perceiving, on the most basic level, a spiritual dimension of life. That not only is God real and Jesus is his son, but also that Jesus rose from the dead, and also that sin is real, and that eternity is real, and that forgiveness so that I can spend eternity with God is also real. These are not outdated concepts of an ancient civilization. They're part and parcel of the disciples' perspective. And, and maybe we should give ourselves a little more credit. We do see spiritual realities crossing over into the realm of the seen. So Paul writes, we quoted this on Wednesday, Romans 1.20, that God's invisible attributes, things like his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived. We can see God's invisible attributes. How? Ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. Paul says the natural world gives us glimpses into the eternity and the power of God. There is someone much greater than us that exists. There must be someone much greater than us because we live in a world that none of us could ever hope to create, even with all our forces put together. We couldn't do this. We didn't do this. Well, who did? And then we see the unseen breaking through when we observe, for example, God's wisdom for living, when we observe that actually doing what God says actually works. Our faith grows as we see God, the gospel giving power to change people's lives, as we see it help people break their addictions, as we see it rebuilding relationships, as we see it calming depressed and anxious hearts, when we see prayers answered, when we see bodies healed, when we see blessings granted, what we are seeing is God breaking through, that we've seen glimpses of Him, which means we can also believe the greater claims that He makes. We don't always see this, these things, but when we see the unseen crossing into the scene, it speaks to far greater spiritual realities. It builds up and confirms our faith. Because I have seen this man healed, I know he has the power to forgive sins. Faith is grasping the unseen. Number three, faith is living with risk. Faith means living with risk. This is Matthew chapter 6. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 6. Jesus often speaks of faith in terms of its size. Jesus sizes up faith. He's got a measure on the amount of faith people have. And so he speaks of people with great faith. Great is your faith. He speaks often of his disciples of you of little faith. He speaks about if only you had the faith of a mustard seed. Jesus is often sizing up people's faith. 
And he regularly chides his disciples for their diminutive faith. He does it here in Matthew 6 and verse 25. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you'll put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Skip down to verse 30. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Jesus here, and we didn't read the whole passage, but you know it. He speaks about the anxiety of having our needs met, the, uh, the urgency we feel, the, the pressing need we feel to attend to those things at the ignorance of everything else in our lives because we so desperately need to have these needs met. On one level, of course, we understand that. But Jesus expects his disciples to transcend that way of thinking. Why? How? Well, the logic of this passage is this. We believe in a God who takes care of the birds and the flowers. Do we not think he will take care of us? What he's really issuing a challenge to the disciples to do is, is to basically let go of that desperate need to take care of our, of our own needs at the expense of anything and everything else. Basically, he's asking them really to take a risk. He wants us to take a great faith step. If we cannot trust God to take care of us, then we have little faith. In other words, if, if we cannot fully throw ourselves into pursuing God because, hey, I have other responsibilities to attend to, then you don't have any faith. If you, can put other thi- if you can put other things in front of your service to God, you don't have any faith. You don't understand the God you're supposed to be pursuing if you say, I have to attend to other things first. If we did understand Him, we would not say nonsense like that. The, the punch of this passage is at the end when he says, Seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added to you. Go with me to Matthew chapter 17. Jesus even talks about how, even if we had just a little bit of faith, a little bit of genuine faith, how big a difference that would make. Specifically in Matthew 17 and verse 20, he's speaking here about the missing ingredient in our prayer lives. You know what the missing ingredient in our prayer lives more often than not is? It's the actual faith that the God we're praying to might actually do, do anything. It's actual faith that the God we're praying to could actually do anything in response to our prayers. This is Matthew 17 and verse 20. Matthew 17 and verse 20. He said to them, Because of your little faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible with you. He's responding to the apostles who are unable to cast a demon out. And Jesus talks about the necessity of prayer for things like that. And then... And then he says what he says here. Now, it's tempting to, to try to unsay what Jesus is trying to say in verse 20. And to try to walk back his promise. I've done it. And so we sort of qualify and we hedge so that Jesus doesn't really say what he's trying to. Or he doesn't say it as strongly as he says it. And so we say, well, you know, this promise isn't literal. And, uh, of course, it's always contingent on God's will. If God doesn't want to move the mountain, he won't move the mountain. And... Jesus is just speaking hypothetically. He's not saying everything will just happen as soon as we pray it. And I get all that. But if all we ever do with Jesus' words is just wish them away and don't actually grapple with what he's trying to say, if we just wish away Jesus' words, I'd have to say it's no wonder our prayer lives are often so safe, which is another way of saying our prayer lives are often so faithless. So we pray to God to be with the doctors before the operation. But we do not pray to God for the healing 
of the person being operated on. We pray for our leaders, but we rarely pray for the widespread moral change in our nation. See, we pray a safer prayer. Be with them. That way we can kind of say he did it, even if it didn't work out, instead of just asking what it is we want God, what we want God to do. We ask for less because there's less risk of disappointment. What Jesus says in this passage is God can move mountains. But because we're not so sure, we only ask him to roll a tumbleweed a few inches forward. See, Jesus is pushing his disciples to embrace the risk inherent in faith, to risk disappointment even. He says the reason our spiritual lives and the reason our prayer lives aren't what they could be is not because God lacks power. It's because we lack faith in God's power. That's what he's saying in this passage. You know, this is a recurring theme in resurrection stories in the Gospels. Jesus is often talking about people's faith, how little faith they have. As he walks with a man back to the house where his daughter had just died, Jesus tells that man in Mark 5 and verse 36, Do not fear, only believe. At the tomb of Lazarus, Martha is getting on Jesus for telling them to move away the stone because she says, by this time the body will smell. Jesus responds to her, did I not tell you that if you believe, you would see the glory of God, John 10 and verse 40. He tells people who are, get, who are mourning their dead relatives, he says, don't fear, only believe. If Jesus wants people to believe in those most extreme moments, How much more does he want us to step out on a ledge and to trust and believe him every day? There is a risk involved in faith. Our commitment to Jesus will lead us to have difficult conversations with people. It will lead us to make life-changing decisions. It will cause us to end relationships that are pulling us away from him. Will we have the faith to take the risk to follow Jesus wherever he says? Faith is living with risk. Number four, faith is deeper spiritual understanding. This is Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8. Now, there are some people in the Gospels whose faith Jesus praises. He's not always just getting on to people for having too little faith. There are stories where he commends people for the great faith they have and display. In this story, a centurion, a centurion is a Roman soldier in charge of 100 men. A centurion approaches Jesus, telling him about his sick servant. And Jesus begins to go see the servant, uh, I guess with the intention of healing him. But the centurion stops him before they can go, go very far. This is Matthew 8 in verse 8. The centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and my servant Uh, And to my servant, do this, and he does it. Appreciate this. The centurion somehow has the idea that Jesus is so powerful, he doesn't even need to be present in order to heal his servant. But it's a lot more than that. What would he have to believe about Jesus to believe that about him? Really what he's expressing here is a belief in the transcendence of Jesus' power. What he's expressing is, I know you're, just not, you're not just someone who has a few herbal remedies. I know that's not what you're about. What he's expressing here is a belief that Jesus' power is something like God's power in Genesis chapter 1. He need only speak, and all creation jumps into action. That's what happens in Genesis 1. And the centurion is saying to Jesus, I think your power is something like that. You need only say the word, 
Let there be light. Let your servant be healed, and it will happen. And all creation will spring into action. Centurion says, I know what it is to command a hundred men. But he believes Jesus knows what it is to command the created order, to command the universe. You need only say the word, he says. The centurion doesn't just believe in Jesus, whatever that means. He has a detailed and thoughtful understanding of Jesus' power. He connects the dots about Jesus in a way almost no one in Israel had. And in response, it's one of the most astonishing verses in the Gospels. Jesus doesn't just commend his faith. He doesn't just say, good job on putting that together. It's just something even bigger than that in verse 10. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. What in the world does it take to make Jesus hang his mouth open in unbelief and surprise to marvel at something? Well, it's to say something like that from a man like that. I want you to contrast this very careful, nuanced, faithful understanding of Jesus with another story in Matthew 16 where Jesus is in interaction with the apostles. This is Matthew 16. One day, Matthew 16, they crossed the sea, and in the boat, they realized they'd forgotten bread for lunch. And Jesus seizes on this, this uh, happening as, as a reminder, as, a, as a, uh, a way of teaching a spiritual lesson. Matthew 16 Verse 6. Jesus said to them, watch, this is verse 5, when the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Verse 6, Jesus said to them, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And so it's a little reminder when they mention bread, let's talk about leaven, which is a crucial ingredient in bread. Let me remind you of the leaven, the corrupting influence of the scribes and Pharisees. Clearly, Jesus means this to kick off sort of interaction where he can talk about what he wants to talk about. And how does that reminder stimulate their understanding? What, what good, insightful questions does it raise them to ask about the scribes and Pharisees? What deep spiritual lessons are they getting ready to draw out of Jesus' warning? Verse 7. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, We brought no bread. In verse 8, Jesus kind of goes off on them. Verse 8. But Jesus, aware of this, said, O you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not re yet remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the, the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware the leaven of the, the Pharisees and Sadducees. Jesus is sharp with them. They have, he says, little faith. And why do they have little faith? On what basis does he say they have little faith? He says, because you do not yet perceive. Do you not yet perceive? Interestingly, Jesus says, the reason I know you don't have enough faith is because you don't have enough understanding. You don't have enough perception. He says, your understanding is still on a kindergarten level. I cannot speak to you about matters of spiritual depth. I just can't with you. You don't have enough faith for that. What Jesus wants to do is to warn them about the influence and the teaching and the hypocrisy and the spiritual leadership of Israel. It's going to be a real temptation for them to be wooed by the prestige of the scribes and Pharisees, to bend when the scribes and Pharisees threaten them to stop talking about Jesus. It's going to be a real issue in the coming years, their relationship and the way they think about the scribes and Pharisees. Jesus needs to teach them and prepare them for it. And they just sort of say, huh, bread, what? 
We're hungry. Behind Jesus' rebuke is the expectation that in time, our faith should grow to the point that we are better, to, we are better, to able, uh, better able to reason spiritually. Our faith should grow so that we're better able to reason spiritually. Verse 9, do you not yet perceive? That means Jesus expects them to be farther along than they are. It's what the Hebrew writer chides his readers about in Hebrews 5. He says, though, but, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles. You need milk, not solid food. Solid food is for the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Jesus wants to deepen our understanding. But first he says you've got to be growing. You've got to be getting deeper as a person in order for you to get the deeper understanding that I'm trying to give you. Spiritual understanding means we're conversant in the priorities of God. It means we've thought deeply about how God works and what God is like. We've thought a lot about what God wants and what He loves and what He hates. Not just what we're allowed to do and still not not go to hell. It means we've thought deeply about God and His mind and His will. It means we've immersed ourselves in the Scriptures so that we're we're more capable of grasping deeper and subtler truths in them. We're not, not trying to get the books in the Bible in the right order still. We've gotten past that to deeper issues. It means we become better prepared for the solid food of the more challenging parts of the Bible. It's not just academic, though. It means we're better able to discern good from evil. That this, this deeper spiritual understanding works itself out in our lives, especially in areas where it's not obvious at first what the right thing is, when there's not a, a quick little proof text that gives us an obvious answer for everything. It means we can take the mind, the, the, the Scripture-trained mind that we have, and apply it to the world. It means we know how to, with skill, teach and influence other people. It means we can skillfully and not clumsily encourage people. Skillfully, not clumsily comfort people. Skillfully, not clumsily rebuke other people. Having deeper spiritual understanding means we're better equipped to do that. We're equipped with wisdom to know how to move about in God's world with a good head on our shoulders. It means we're better prepared to be elders. Faith is a process of developing deeper understanding. Maybe this is a good reminder. Sometimes we think the opposite of faith is knowledge. That faith, the opposite of faith is knowledge. In the Bible, the opposite of faith is not knowledge. The opposite of faith is unbelief. Is unbelief. Faith and knowledge, faith and understanding, faith and perceiving always go hand in hand. Faith is a deeper spiritual understanding. Fifth and finally, in the Gospels, faith is persistence. This is Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15. This is a story of a Canaanite woman who comes to Jesus because her daughter has a demon. She cries out to Jesus for help, but he ignores her. And eventually the disciples, increasingly annoyed at her, they ask Jesus to send her away. And uh, that's how the conversation unfolds. This is uh, verse 24. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And so the first thing Jesus does is refuses to even acknowledge this woman because she's not a Jew. But in verse 25, she won't go away. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to dogs. So Jesus finally speaks to her, but he essentially calls her a dog. Not essentially. He calls her a dog, and he refuses to help her again. But in verse 27, she comes right back. 
She said, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. So she's not, she, she's not run off. She's not offended by the insult. What she says is, call me what you want. Treat me how you want. Just help my daughter. And it's at that, in verse 28, that Jesus calls her persistence a sign of her great faith. Now, Jesus is always a step ahead of everyone he ever talks to. He's always two or three steps ahead of what anyone else is. So I don't believe he's simply being insulting to this woman. What his goal in this interaction is, is to draw out her faith, I think primarily as an example to his disciples who are watching this happen. The more he refuses to help, the stronger her faith gets. That's what happens in this interaction. The more Jesus refuses to help, the stronger and more persistent her faith gets. And so what begins here as, as, a, as a simple request becomes by the end of the story a desperate passion that eclipses everything else for this woman. She's willing to give up anything, to stay there as long as possible, to be insulted, to have her pride demolished, because she has come for something. Jesus has drawn out her faith which is revealed by her no-holds-barred persistence. There's, there's a parable Jesus tells in another place about a woman just like this. There's a story about a judge who won't give justice to a widow. He doesn't care about her. He doesn't care about her case. But he finally relents, he says, because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she'll not beat me down by her continual coming. And Jesus says it's a story about prayer and how God wants us always to pray and not lose heart. And Jesus describes that sort of spirit in that story as faith. When, when the Son of Man comes to earth, will he really find faith on the earth? Will he find persistent faith like that? Discipleship is a commitment that will require times of, of uncomfortable change, of uncomfortable growth in our character. There will be opposition to us. We will uncover new areas in our lives that demand attention. We will be disappointed when prayers aren't answered how we want, when we want. We'll have difficulty with fellow disciples. We will be discouraged. We might have a season of zeal and then we'll have a season of discouragement. Faith means we have the persistent to continue, persistence to continue through these disappointments and struggles because we believe in Jesus. Faith is all about persistence in the Gospels. We will never give up on Jesus. So all Christians are ever talking about, all preachers are ever talking about is faith. Faith, faith, faith. What are we even talking about? It sounds like just sort of religious jargon. We throw the word around, makes us sound kind of holy. It's a stuff of cliches. We tell people you've got to have faith. What in the world does that mean? Faith can become a very trite, cliche, boring thing to talk about. When you hear Jesus talk about faith, when you read the stories in the Gospels of people who actually have it and the stories of the people who don't have it, we find faith is a very multidimensional thing. It's a very interesting thing. It's a very challenging thing, a very provocative thing. And so let us never shrug our shoulders. Let us never yawn at the mention of a word like faith. And may we always be ready to cry out at the top of our voices exactly what the apostles do in Luke 17 and verse 5. Lord, increase our faith. And so maybe there's someone here that needs to come and embrace this full-orbed, multi-dimensional faith we've been reading about. There's some way, not that you just don't believe in some hypothetical 
uh, metaphysical claims of Jesus. That's not what we mean. But we mean a real, boots on the ground, lived out faith. A faith that looks to Jesus. A faith that does what he says. A faith that trusts him. A faith that pursues him relentlessly. If there's someone that needs help on their walk with God, whatever your spiritual need, come forward now as we stand and sing.